The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Second Peter chapter 1. And this evening we're going to begin a new topic in our Living for Jesus series. And our purpose in the series is to discuss ways that we can have a closer walk with the Lord. And that, of course, is what the Bible means by um, walking with Christ. It means to live the way that Christ lived. We're encouraged to do that. We started in February talking about discipleship. That was the first lesson that we had. And in that lesson, we learned that the word itself, disciple, means to be a follower. Uh, A disciple means to be an adherent, one who sticks close to what another teaches. And in this part of the series, we're going to learn what we are supposed to learn. Now, we kind of covered that a little bit with a question that I asked this morning, and that is, what are we to learn? And I think everybody was in agreement. Well, Brother Paul, after listening to my message, said, the thing that we are to learn is Christ. That was probably the best answer for the moment because of the sermon that I just preached. But I was actually going towards what we were going to talk about tonight, which is the Bible. We are to learn the Bible. But that central character of the Bible, of course, is Jesus Christ. So he's the one that we're going to learn about. So the answer is we are to learn the Bible because that is the only book that God has given us to tell us about him. In fact, the Bible is the only divine book, the only one that's written with or by divine inspiration. Now, you might remember a few weeks ago that uh, I talked about the Roman Catholic's answer to this question, or uh, it was asked in the context, uh, Jared actually sent this to me, in the context of Roman Catholicism, where in the Bible does it say the Bible is the only source of Christian doctrine? And, of course, that question is is a smokescreen to teach that the traditions of Roman Catholicism that aren't found in any scripture are valid, Because the magisterium says that those traditions are equal to the scriptures in their authority. So that makes things a little bit confusing when people ask the question, what are we to learn? Because you have this thing out there, well, the Bible's not the only thing that has authority. We've got to learn all these other things as well. But I think that Peter gives us a very clear answer about this in the first chapter in the second epistle, where he says in verse number 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also... more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now there in verse number 21... Peter is speaking of the Bible. And you'll notice something very interesting uh, about this. He's talking about the transfiguration of Christ. And you remember that in Matthew chapter 17, Peter, James, and John 
were taken up on a mountain and there they, they witnessed the glory of Christ, which in this particular passage Peter calls the majesty of Christ. And Christ was, Jesus was changed in front of them. Uh, his countenance changed, uh, his face shone, his clothes were changed so they became white as light. And that no doubt was quite a sight for these disciples. And they were just dazzled about, about what they had seen. And they couldn't wait to get down from that mountain, I'm sure, to tell others what had happened on that mountain. But you remember that Jesus said, don't tell anybody about this. Keep this information quiet until I've risen from the dead. And so they did. They didn't tell anyone. They held that information close and they kept it between themselves until the time that Jesus arose and ascended into heaven. And then they were able to start talking about this stunning event that had happened on the mountain. Now, Peter said, this is, this is not some wild, fanciful story that we've told you. It's not a fairy tale that we've made up. And very important, importantly, he says here, this is something that we saw with our own eyes. Or he says we are eyewitnesses of this. Now, it's really, that's really the point of this particular scripture. He wants us to know that they saw it. He was sure of it. The ones who saw it were sure of it with no doubt. And that statement sets up the rest of what he says here when he tells us that God's word is far more sure than even what you can see with your own eyes. He said, we have a more sure word of prophecy, more sure than what we've seen with our eyes. Now, we know the saying, seeing is believing, but Peter goes above that, and he says that God's word is more sure than what you can see. And you say, well, why is that? Because the Bible comes from God. Eyes can be deceiving, God's word is always sure beyond doubt. So I think that answers the question, what are we to believe as Christians? Well, we're not to trust what men have said. We don't trust what popes and cardinals say. We're not to put our faith in the testimony of men, not even if those men have seen great miracles with their own eyes. If what they see is against God's word or contradicts God's word is not found in God's word. God's word is the sure prophecy always to be believed, even above what we see. We always accept it without question. So if you're going to live for Jesus, you've got to know what the Bible has to say about him. Now that's a huge problem for many people because they trust other things besides the Bible. They, they trust things of their imagination or they trust those fables that we, that we talk about. And many of the things that people believe are simply not confirmed by the scriptures. You can't find anything about what they say in the scriptures. So Peter said, we've not followed any cunningly devised fables. The word of God is not about man's opinions. It is, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, he says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now, tonight is our introduction to living as a learner. And this evening, I want to take a little bit of time to talk to you about the Bible. That, that, that's the source book. That's the foundation of all the doctrines of the faith. And we need to know, why is it that we can trust the Bible? Why this particular book? Why do we reject all other books but the Bible? So I want us to think about that tonight. We're going to talk about actually studying the Bible later uh, but now I want you to know why the Bible is 
trustworthy. Why are we so sure this is the book that we should know? Well, it's familiar to most of you that are here tonight, but I think it's something we need to just keep in, keep in our minds. We have God's Word with us, and this is the thing that tells us what we are to do and how we are to live and all things about Christ. So I want to start with um, the, the Statement of Faith, a, an article of the Statement of Faith that we adopted a few years ago. And, the, and, and those of you, all of you should have read the church's Statement of Faith, that is, all members should have read that, because that is a, a, a summary of doctrines that we believe. It doesn't cover every subject in the Bible. It doesn't, it's not the full extent of everything we believe about any of the subjects that are there. Uh, but it does provide a very good foundation for the core fundamentals of what we believe as God's people. Now, this is the first article, the very first article in that statement of faith, and it concerns the thing that's going to be foundational for everything else that's said, and that would be the Scriptures. So Article 1 of the Scriptures says, We believe that the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction, that it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us, and therefore and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. That's a grand statement. That's a great statement. And the first part of that sets forth very strongly an unwavering declaration that the Bible is the foundation of our faith. Now, it says that we believe that the Bible was written by men divinely inspired. That's what Peter says in verse 21 of our text. The Bible is an inspired book. It was the Holy Spirit of God speaking to man. Now, divinely inspired, that is an important or critical phrase in the, in the Scriptures, uh, critical to us understanding why the Bible is unique. So we're going to talk about this first tonight, and that is the inspiration of Scripture. Inspiration itself is a very technical term from the Scriptures. In, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That phrase, inspiration of God, that's all one word in the Greek, and it's the word theopneustos. It literally means God breathed. First part, theos, that means God. Neustos, that re comes from the word pneuma, uh, same word from which we get pneumonia. It actually means breath. It has to do with breathing. So what the Scriptures is saying is that God breathed out the Scriptures. And that's a really neat concept to think about, that the Holy Spirit came on the Bible authors and they were carried along like literally being, or like being lifted up by the wind of God's breath and God breathed in them and then they wrote down what God breathed into them. The idea is like, somewhat like uh, not just lifting up with the wind but being carried along in a stream like a, like a stick falling into a stream and then that stick going wherever the stream takes us takes it and that's what these men did is they wrote down the word of God they went where God took them as he breathed into them so that's the idea behind theopneustos the Holy Spirit carried the authors along and what they wrote down was not their opinions they wrote what the Holy Spirit put into their minds to write and so Peter says here, Holy men of God spake 
as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. As they were moved. And he means by that, as they were carried along. And that's why Peter says we have a more sure word of prophecy. You see, what you see with your own eyes can't be greater than what the Holy Spirit reveals to your heart, to your mind, by the written revelation of God. So when these men wrote down the Scriptures, it was supernatural. There couldn't have been anything written that was false. God used styles, their styles, He used their personalities, but what they wrote was only what God breathed into them. Well, there's two very important concepts that we have to consider about inspiration. We need to know the extent that the Scriptures were inspired. How closely did God work with these men when He inspired them? How much of the Scriptures are actually inspired? Well, there are two important words that we need to remember. Those of you in the fundamentals class, this was one of, the, I guess it was the first lesson that we went through, and you'll, you'll recognize these words, I hope, but we still need to go over them. And that is, first of all, that the Scriptures are verbally inspired. That's important because it means that God gave words, not just thoughts. God didn't say, well, here, here's a few starter statements for you to work with, and uh, you, you take these statements and you develop something out of that. You, you decide what, what that actually means. No, that's not what God did. God verbally inspired Scripture. That is, He gave them the words that they were to write down. Nothing was left into the interpretation of the writers. And that's what Peter means here when he says in verse 20 that no Scripture is a private interpretation. Oddly enough, that Scripture itself is misinterpreted, and I'm not going to go into the ways that people do that. But what he means is that there is no Scripture that is one individual author's opinion. And that's why you can't find any contradictions in the Bible. If the Bible was a book of opinions, then we would expect to find many different controversies, many opposite opinions, just like you and I have opposite opinions about many things. So this can't be a book of man's opinions because in the Bible everything absolutely agrees. The Bible is consistent with itself because, because there's only one opinion that counts. It's God's opinion. And that's what we have in Scripture. Oh, we never worry that Peter's going to disagree with Paul. We never worry John's going to disagree with James. And we don't worry as some people actually do or try to say that the Apostle Paul disagrees with James on such important subjects such as justification. Now, if you find something like that, then you have misinterpreted the Word of God because there aren't any contradictions in Scripture. See, there can't be any disagreement because the men recorded Scripture. They didn't invent it. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says that every word of God is pure. Every word that they put down on those parchments was the word that God wanted put there. It was written in the way that God wanted it written. Now, as I said, God used author, the author's styles. He used their vocabulary, but he didn't use their opinions. The words are his words. It's verbally inspired. And that, that also tells you why we need verbally inspired translations. Verbally, or rather, verbally equivalent translations is what I should say because translations aren't inspired. But we need verbally equivalent translations as much as possible when translating from the original languages were to translate words, not make up some kind of things that we think are what should be there, thoughts that we have put there that aren't actually in the original manuscript or, or, or in those manuscripts that have been copied. So translations are to be faithful to the text that's been given in the original language and not insert man's 
commentary. Then secondly, we, we affirm that the scriptures are plenarily inspired. Plenary means that they are fully and completely inspired. They're full and complete as to the extent of being the entire revelation that God has given. That's why we reject Roman Catholicism and their ideas of traditions because we say this is all that God has given us. This is God's Word. It's fully and completely inspired and there's not one part of it that is God's Word and another part that isn't God's Word. And you can see the kinds of problems that would be created if that's what we thought. If the Bible is inspired in one part and not in another, then who's to tell us which was which? How do we know what God said and what somebody else said? A few years ago, the, the Jesus Seminar purported to tell us what Jesus actually said in the Gospels. What part of the Gospels are what Jesus actually said? And when they got done cutting the thing apart, you could have put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in a pocket pamphlet. Most of it, by far the majority of it, they said, Jesus never actually said that. Then you have people that have trouble with those first 11 chapters of Genesis. And they say, those aren't inspired by God. And if they are inspired, they're an inspired fairy tale as a means of explaining to superstitious people who couldn't possibly understand the science of all this about how we all got here. So Genesis 1 through 11, that isn't inspired. And so you have professors in Christian colleges. And I, I don't know if I mentioned this the other night or mentioned to somebody that um, I had read a, a statistic that uh, of the of the Christian colleges that are, let's see, 100 out of 105 Christian colleges that are accredited, accredited with you know, the accrediting agencies, out of 105, 100 of them denied the truth of Genesis 1 through 11. Christian colleges. That's a real problem for us. Where are we going to find out how the world actually began? How are we going to know how sin entered into the world? How, how do we know how death entered into the world? And three chapters into that story, God told us exactly how he was going to deal with it. Genesis 3.15, in that, uh, in that first preaching of the gospel there, uh, Jesus has already talked about three chapters into the Bible. So you take away complete inspiration of those chapters and the rest of the Bible simply doesn't make any sense. How many times did Jesus refer to Genesis and, and, and other authors of scriptures refer to Genesis and never doubted that it was the truth of what God said? If you don't have that, then redemption doesn't make sense. The fall of man, that, if you don't have creation and the fall of man, then you don't have any idea why we even need redemption. And then there are others that say, well, they're, they're, uh, this Bible that you have in your hands, there are parts of this that have been added by scribes through the years. Things have been put into the Bible... And um, and there are mistakes because scribes put into the into the verse put verses in where they shouldn't be, or they added their other their own explanations to clarify text. Well, again, we have a problem. If that's true, then who's authorized to tell us what should be there and what isn't there? All of this is inspired. From Genesis to Revelation, it's inspired. Every verse is the word of God, and these words are the words that God put there and where they should be. And not only that, but all of God's Word is here. It's all here. There's nothing that's been left out. No parts have been lost. 
You know, that's a popular thing that goes around too. Well, the, the, the part of the Bible has been lost, and now we've got a new discovery to add something to the Bible. No, there's never going to be a new discovery to add something to the Bible. We have it all right here in 66 books, and God gave us all that he intended for us to have. We have everything that he intended to say, and then God guards what he intended to say with very strict commands regarding it. And he says, don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Both Testaments contain the warning. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. And then in Revelation, the Scriptures end with Revelation 22, and there it says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book, And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. But you have some that want to cut from the word of God. You have translations like the NIV where there are verses that are missing. And then there are some that want to to tell us that there's more that actually makes up God's word, that God sent an angel and with another testament, and that's called the Book of Mormon. So we add to it, that's God's word too. And all the cults have this common denominator that their heresies can't be found in the Bible, and so what they say, well, the Bible's not all there is. The Bible's not all that you look to. That's not all the revelation that God gave. And that would stand to reason, wouldn't it? If you can't find what you believe in the Scriptures, if you can't find freaked out ideas like holy underwear and people are going to rule on planets as gods, then you better find something else that supports that. So you come up with another book and you say, well, this is also the Word of God. There aren't any books missing. There is nothing that needs to be added to it. There there isn't anything that church leaders, this is another theory, church leaders conspired to leave certain things out of the Bible. And so it comes down to us perverted because the church leaders decide, well, we don't want that to be put in there. And then there aren't these other things like the Apocrypha that they say, well, that's also inspired Scripture. No, God gave us all the canon of Scripture which from the time of the New Testament has been recognized as the only revelation that God gave. We have it all. 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. And so when we study... Those are the books that we study. If you want to know Scripture, then leave the rest of it out. Forget the Book of Mormon. Forget all the cult writings. Only God's Word is recognized, and only in 66 books of both the Old and the New Testaments. Now, if the Bible then is verbally inspired, and it's plenarily inspired, then what does that mean to us? If God is the author, what does that mean? Well, it means there can't be any error in it. There can't be anything wrong with it. There are no mistakes. It means that there aren't myths and fables that are, that are mixed in with miracles and commandment, commandments. Somebody said, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a complete untruth. And that's what the Bible would be if it's not inspired. So the result of inspiration is that the Bible is infallible. If God wrote it, It's impossible to contain mistakes. Otherwise, God himself is fallible, and a fallible God is no God. Now, uh, we think about that for a moment, and if that's all true, which we believe it is, then when the Bible touches on any subject, it's going to be correct. 
If the Bible touches on science, it's going to be right about that science. If the Bible touches on on any kind of history, it's going to be right about that history. If it touches on geography, it's going to be right about that geography. The Bible has never been proven wrong on any subject. It's really interesting that there are references to a spherical earth in the scriptures. When in the Middle Ages, the Pope said, affirmed, the world is flat. But the Bible knew that long before the Middle Ages, what, that the earth was spherical. Uh, science, or not scientists, but, but archaeologists said, well, you know, there weren't any people, really any people like, for instance, the Hittites that you read about in the Old Testament. There was really no people like that because they couldn't find any evidence of it. But you know something? One time, all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but they're searching and what do they find? Evidence of Hittites, just like the Bible says. Sir William Ramsey, back in the early 20th century, set out to prove that the Bible was wrong about its geography. And so, after studying the New Testament, he, w- he went to seek out these places that he was convinced never actually existed. And through his travels and his studies, he found out that the Bible was exactly accurate in everything that it said. The Bible is always amazingly accurate. Well, why is it so important that the Bible came from God and not from man? Well, the inspiration of Scripture is important to us because... The knowledge of all Bible doctrines comes from the Bible. The foundation for it all is in the Scripture. So if the Bible's not true, then these critical, important doctrines that believe that we believe aren't true. For, for instance, justification by faith, that, that faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. If, if the Bible's not true, then how do we know that's just a complete, not a complete myth? How do we know about creation except for the Bible? How do we get the knowledge of sin? Where do we learn the truth of this human condition that I talked about when I said the mind is depraved, the will is depraved, we're completely depraved creatures? How would we ever know that unless we find it in some infallible source that tells us so, and that source is the Bible? How do we know that there was a virgin birth and why there ever needed to be a virgin birth? It's because of those very things that are taught in the Scripture. How do we know about Jesus' sinless life? How do we know about his sacrificial death? How do we know about the crucifixion when there were thousands upon thousands of of people that were crucified and Jesus and two other men on crosses become nameless figures in lost Roman history, if not for the Bible? That's where we find out about it. It's miraculous that we know about Jesus Because the record's not been forgotten, it's recorded in the Bible. The Bible circled the globe. It's been read and and believed by billions of people for hundreds of years, 2,000 years. How do we know about salvation? How do we know about heaven and hell? How do we know that life after death? Or, you know, people have it inherently in them to believe that there is life after death. I mean, that's a natural thing that we're born with. But who's qualified to tell us how we achieve that life after death and what it's all about. Well, you can't know that unless you go to an infallible source. Otherwise, everything becomes a person's opinion. That's what I always find out or what you'll find out too. If you, if you, if you talk to people, witness to enough people, um, you ask them, you know, well, what do you believe about this? And they'll say, well, this is what I believe. And you say, why do you believe that? Just because I believe it. Oh, you mean the source is you. Your opinion, that counts for everything, huh? Why do you have that opinion? 
Oh, people don't like it when their opinions conflict with the Word of God. But we have to have an infallible source, or that's all they ever are, is somebody's opinion. So if I'm going to go to heaven or hell, then I sure want to know what's the truth about that. How am I going to get there? How am I going to live forever? How am I going to be with God? The only place I'm going to find that out is in God's Word. It's the only place where that information is revealed. So I don't want my high authority to be somebody's puny brain. So everything we know about doctrine, everything that needs to be known about right religion, everything that needs to be known about Christ is based on the Bible. And a faith that that is based on an unsure foundation cannot produce an assured salvation. That's an impossible thing. So inspiration is important because all Bible doctrine depends upon it. And then you have this to consider. If the Bible's statement about its own inspiration, what we read about here in in 2 Peter, if the Bible's statement about its own inspiration is not true, then how do you trust anything that the Bible says? Does it make any sense that a liberal theologian would look at this and he'd say, Oh, no, the Bible's not inspired. Uh, Peter was wrong about this. It's not true. The Bible's not inspired. Well, where in common sense, then, does he have any reason to believe anything that Scripture says? Why are we even dealing with the Bible at all? If the Bible's not inspired, when it says that it's inspired, it becomes a book of fiction. So you can make your Bible Moby Dick if you want to. That, that can be your Bible. I don't know how many have read the Iliad and Ulysses. Those are very interesting books in their form, an important thing about mythology and all that kind of stuff, the stories that you have there. Why not believe that? Why not make that your Bible? Well, Peter makes it about as clear as it can possibly be, and I hope that I have the reason that you need to stay in the Bible. Be sure that even what I'm telling you, Everything that I've told you thus far, be sure that that's accurate. How? By reading the Bible. Going to the Bible and see, is what I say actually what the Bible says? And then here's something else that I know, that many times the Old Testament Scriptures are prefaced, or they may conclude with statements like this. Hear the word of the Lord. Or thus saith the Lord. Did you know Moses said that 1,500 times in the Pentateuch alone? Did you know that that in the prophets, 1,200 times the prophets said that? 300 times in other books of the Old Testament, those kinds of statements are made. So if you say, well, the Bible's not inspired, then you've just done away with 3,000 times that God said, it's my word. This is what I said. God said this. So you mean to tell me then, in just the Old Testament alone, we have a book that has 3,000 lies in it? 3,000 lies? So if you give up inspiration, you've given up every doctrine that's in the Bible. You have no reason to believe any of it. I mean, who could possibly defend what they believe that's in the Bible based on a corrupt text, something that's contained that's full of lies? If God's word is no good, God is no good. You know, that's what I think about you. You lie to me two times, not 3,000 times. You lie to me two two times. You're of no use to me. You're of no value to me. And me lying to you, if I do that purposely, one lie purposely, is enough for you to say, well, I'm never going to listen to that guy again. You know, I think about uh, 
Think about the Kaczynskis and drive up all the way from San Rafael to church. They're on vacation right now. Drive all the way from San Rafael. Or Steve and Mona and their family. Drive all the way up from, from Novato. And I can tell you sometimes that's a, that's a menacing drive. That's got to be a bad thing to do. And yet they show up for church. And so can you imagine them saying to their neighbors, Yeah, we're headed up to church in Rona Park again. We've got a pastor up there that 75% of the time he lies. But we sure do love the drive up there. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense at all, does it? Maybe politicians can get away with lying 75% of the time. I can't. Now, my original line was Democrats, but you understand what I'm saying here. Um, So you see how critical inspiration of Scripture is? Do you see that? I mean, you can't function as a Christian and not believe that the Bible is 100% true, that it is the complete Word of God. If Second Peter is not right, if Peter the Apostle is not right about this, then pack up your things and move along because there's nothing to see here. Well, that brings me to another point, and we'll conclude with this. And then we'll take up particulars of study in the next lesson. Number two is the preservation of Scripture. The preservation of it. Now, maybe you can accept this, that God breathed out, He inspired the original manuscripts. When those men were alive, God breathed into them and they wrote things down and everything was good then. But when's the last time that God breathed into anybody? Well, that was 2,000 years ago. Some of it, 3,500 years ago. That's the last time that God breathed anything into anybody as far as Scripture is concerned. So how do we know the record that we have today is the same word that God gave 2,000 years ago, up to 3,500 years ago, how do we know it's the very same word that God gave? I mean, that's a very important question. Very important question. The Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, and the Scriptures have been recorded. They were recorded originally. They've been copied. They've been recopied. And I can't tell you, copied again. I don't know what, re-re-re-recopied. They've been translated, retranslated, gone over. All this done hundreds and hundreds, thousands of times. So how do we know the Bible that we have right now is still the same? How do I know that I'm even reading a right translation? Well, let's talk about that. How do we know? Well, first thing we have to do is look at the internal proof of preservation. So first we look at the internal claims. I'll give you direct claims first, and then we'll just talk a little bit about indirect claims. Psalm uh, 119, verse 89 Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. How long is forever? What does forever mean? Well, that that means until they could actually get it all down. Until they could actually get it all written down in their own language. Or you may say, well, okay, it says it's settled in heaven, but we're on earth. What good does it do us that God's word is settled in heaven? Well, you know, we kind of need not to be so hard-headed about things. Of course, what the psalmist is speaking of here is that he has God's word. He believes he has God's word. God has spoken to him and he's sharing it. He's sharing that word. He has the word that's been recorded before. He believes that that's God's word. And and the reason that he believes it's God's word is because of what he just said. It's settled in heaven. So I know it's God's word. Now, he had it there in his hands and he is spreading that good news that what he has is what God said. And when the psalmist wrote those particular words, it was at least 500 years of constant copying 
that had gone by and that constant copying had given him copies of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, had given him Joshua and Judges and Ruth and uh, other books before the time that he wrote this, which we don't know that exact year. He believed he had the word of God. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And when Isaiah wrote that, he was 800 years removed from the first words that were written as Scripture. And he had no fear that the word of God had been lost. We read Jesus in Matthew 5.18. He said, For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And there was Jesus saying that, and he's 1,500 years removed from the time that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And Jesus wasn't, wasn't telling them, and the people weren't hearing this, well, something bad could have happened to the law of God. We don't think we actually have it any longer. Not according to Jesus. Not according to those people that listened to him. 1 Peter 1, 23 and 25, Peter writes there, "...being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you." Now, there, that's a very interesting thing that he's written here because here the prophecy of Isaiah is affirmed by Peter and he said that what Isaiah wrote is the very same word of the gospel that he was preaching in the New Testament. There weren't any changes to it. He was confident. God guaranteed the preservation of his word. Well, you ask, has anybody ever tried to corrupt the word? Yes, Satan does that all the time. I don't think that you would find 50 translation in, in English in the bookstore if somebody wasn't trying to pervert the Word of God. But because there are 50 wrong translations doesn't mean there isn't a right one. That God hasn't preserved His Word. Now, in many years of copying manuscripts in the past, it was always known that some of the manuscripts that fell into the hands of scribes to copy were bad manuscripts. And God superintended this so the bad manuscripts get filtered out. They discard those and God makes sure there are plenty of copies of the right manuscripts and plenty of those copies have come down to us. They have survived. They're remarkably consistent. We know that we have God's Word. Now because there were many false manuscripts, bad manuscripts, doesn't mean there weren't correct ones. Now you take time to read the 119th Psalm that I read from just a moment ago, and you see if there's any doubt in all of that psalm about what God said. Does the psalmist ever produce any doubt at all that future generations are not going to have the Word of God? That's direct evidence from the Scripture, what the Scripture says about itself. There's much more. Then there's indirect evidence. I've already given you some. That God warns about attempts to corrupt his word. There's warnings, very strong warnings in the scripture about adding or taking away from the word of God. Well, what do you think the warnings are toothless? Do you think that, that God's not capable of bringing the hammer down on somebody who tries to corrupt his word? If we don't have the same Bible that the Holy Spirit gave, then those who tried to destroy the Bible have done what God said couldn't be done. God said that's impossible. Is every Bible that you pick up the right one? No. But still, that doesn't mean there isn't a pure word of God provided by the power of God. 
And of course, we believe that we read that in English in the King James. But there are also Spanish Bibles. There are French Bibles. There are Bibles in almost all the languages of the world. Well, the best known languages of the world anyway now. And uh, you go in my office, I've got some copies of some Korean Bibles. Do, do they have the Word of God? Well, sure, they have the Word of God. God's made sure that people can have His inspired Word in their hands. Now, one other, one other point about preservation, and that would be the external claims. We don't need anything other than internal claims, what the Bible says about itself, because we believe the Bible. But we also have these external claims that Christians of all ages, going all the way back to the New Testament times and before, they believe that they had God's Word in their hands. They believe that God preserves His Word. Now, there, there, in New Testament times, there weren't many copies of Scripture for people to own themselves. I mean, the person would be able to carry around. I mean, before the, the printing press, having a complete copy of the Word of God, of those 66 books, would be scarce. And uh, many times whole congregations would only have one copy of the complete Word of God, and they would take that one and they would chain it to the pulpit. And people would have to come to the church to read the Word of God. Now, I don't know who was going to steal it. That'd be a bad thing to do. But they chained them to the pulpit, and people had to come to church to read the Word of God. So if you had a complete copy of the Word of God before the printing press, you'd probably, I mean, you could have to have some help to carry it around. That's a pretty big thing. So, and then reading the Word of God, I think about that. Just reading it was a challenging thing. No chapters, no verses. The people had to depend upon their faithful pastors to pick out the passages that they needed from the different places they would be without, they knew the Bible so well that, they could find those things without the chapters and the verses that help us so well today. I have a point about that in a sermon that's coming up on Sunday morning, so I won't go very far with that. But people were sure that what they had was the Word of God. And so what we have are old creeds and confessions that claim that the Bible is perfectly preserved. And one of, one of, the, one of the finest and most revered of all the confessions is the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646. More than 1,600 years after God gave his last words, people believed they still had his word. This is what the Westminster Confession says. The Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. The Swiss Declaration of 1675 says, God saw it, that his word, which is with power unto salvation to everyone who believes, was entrusted to writing, not only through Moses, the prophets, and the apostles, but also he has stood guard and watched over it with fatherly concern to the present time, that it not be destroyed by the cunning of Satan or by any other human deceit. Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of its writing was most generally known to the nations, were immediately inspired by God and were kept pure through subsequent ages by His singular care and providence. They are therefore authentic, so that in all controversies of religion, the church must appeal to them as final. And then, going back to our own confession, which is basically almost without or with very little change, the New Hampshire Confession of 
19, or 1833 rather, and it says, The Scripture shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. And I would say it would be really, really hard for the Bible to be the center of Christian union and the standard by which all things are tried if we don't even have it. It rules our church. Old historic confessions of faith say that Christians have always, show us that Christians have always believed that the word of God is preserved. That's not a newly conceived idea. And so you think then, just as I'm closing, I'm wrapping up right now, so everybody's okay, all right? Um, You think then, why, with all of what the scriptures have to say about inspiration and about preservation, do I have to stand here tonight and preach this? And there's only one reason why I do, or have to, and that's because churches are filled with spineless preachers that don't know anything. When you depart from the Word of God, then you're not worth listening to. You've just become that liar that nobody wants to believe. See, this is God's Word. So we shouldn't really have to defend it. It is God's Word. So what are we to study? The Bible. We're to learn the inspired, infallible Word of God that is able, as it says in Second Timothy, is able to furnish us unto all good works. And those good works are what it takes to live for Jesus. We got it in the Bible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. How blessed we are to, to have the infallible, inspired word of God that we can depend upon, that it gives us a right record, tells us about salvation, tells us about Jesus Christ, the most important knowledge that will ever, ever be gained, anybody can ever learn, is the knowledge of you. And we find that in your holy word. Thank you for giving it to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.